We're going to be in Judges chapter 10 this morning. If you'd like to go ahead and turn there on your Bible or on your phone. We have been kind of in and out of the book of Judges over the last few weeks. Obviously on Easter Sunday we focused on the Gospels. And then last week we had Senior Sunday where we celebrated all of our seniors in high school graduating. So we're going to finish up Judges today and over the next two weeks. Okay, so we're going to be in Judges chapter 10 Today, next week, we're going to actually go backwards and go back to Judges chapter 7. Jonathan Patterson, who is an Old Testament professor at NOBTS, is going to be preaching next Sunday. And his son's name is actually Gideon. So it's only fair that we allow him to speak on that subject, since he is truly the Gideon expert. All right? He is normally in the back producing our service, so anything that goes right or wrong on the screens during the service typically is Jonathan's fault, okay? So he's going to be preaching for us next Sunday. But this morning, we're going to be continuing in Judges, and I want you to notice something. As we read this passage today, you're going to think this is the exact same thing that we have read every single time that we have been in Judges. And you would be correct, because the author of Judges understands this very, very clearly, and it's a very important point of communication. If you communicate everything you are communicating nothing. If you emphasize everything, you are emphasizing nothing. And what the author of Judges understands is that if I continue to show the Israelites and show us in this room the same things over and over and over again, the message is going to stick. So we're going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 10. After Abimelech there arose to save Israel, Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, that is not a misprint, a man of Issachar, and he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years, then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jer, the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years, and he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Haveth Jer to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jer died and was buried at Canaan. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight against also Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Mayanites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me, 
and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them, and they served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. So as we read this chapter, you see the same phrases and the same themes that we have looked at many times before. But in chapter 10, the focus is not on the judges themselves, but on the behaviors that the Israelites were doing. And so the only information that we have on these two judges is basically the length of their reign. What we need to see is that the cycle continues even in chapter 10. This cycle that we have been talking about since the very, very beginning. So all we know is Tola judged 23 years. Jer judged 22 years. And he had 30 sons. And these 30 sons processed in on donkeys and had cities named after them. This is the only information that chapter 10 gives us about these judges. We don't have these elaborate stories like we have of Samson and Gideon and Deborah. It's just this quick two-verse description. And that's because the focus is not on the judges. The focus is on the behavior of the Israelites. And this cycle that we have talked about since the very beginning, sin, oppression, repentance, judgment, and then deliverance is the same cycle that we see right here in chapter 10. And it's the same cycle that you and I deal with if we're believers in Jesus Christ every single day. Sin always brings consequences. So we have to repent. And when we repent, God brings judgment, but He also brings deliverance. This is the cycle that we see again in this particular chapter. So the judges themselves are not the key figures. It's what the Israelites do as a result of their sin. So perhaps some of you are thinking, man, Judges is really, really redundant. I wish you would have picked a book that had a little bit more variety in its topic. But this is intentional. Because we have to embed this cycle that we're reading about deep within our hearts so that we understand that we have a God who is faithful to forgive us and faithful to deliver us every single time we fall short. That is the message of chapter 10. You know, we could actually rewrite verse 6. Look in your Bibles with me at verse 6, and we're going to rewrite this, okay? No, I'm not doing heresy here, but I'm just trying to show you how this verse is applicable to our lives. So instead of the people of Israel, hear me, The American Christians did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served their careers, their money, their achievement, their productivity, their technology, their good works, their sports teams, and they forsook the Lord, and they did not serve Him. So when we look at the gods that the Israelites are worshiping, and we think These have nothing to do with us. You're right, they're different. 
But at the same time, they're exactly the same because every false god leads you to believe that they can satisfy you. The phone that we pick up hundreds of times a day is designed to make us think that we're missing out on something if we don't check it. It's designed to make us think that it has to be on our person at all time because if it's not right by us, we're going to miss out on something. And so we serve our phones. We serve our sports teams. One of my favorite sports teams had a crushing loss last night on TV. I'm not going to tell you who it was, but it was crushing. Who am I serving, my sports team or the God of Israel? And so chapter 10 shows us that even though these gods are foreign lands to the Israelites, the gods that we serve sometimes are the very things that prevent us from putting our full focus on God. We have the ability as believers in Jesus Christ to be distinct from everyone else around us. In fact, Jesus himself teaches us this. In his most famous sermon, he says, But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You see, the reason the Israelites were so enticed by these gods from other nations is because these gods promised them things that they weren't getting from Yahweh. And so they left, and they went and served after these gods. And it is a reminder to you and us that those in our culture, in our neighborhood, in our families, those that we work with that are not followers of Jesus are not after the same things that we are after. So to play the comparison game with those in our circles that do not follow after Jesus is very, very dangerous because we will never be satisfied by the things that they are after. I used to believe that the best way to reach people for Christ was to fit in, was to be as normal as possible. Because if I was weird and I stood out, nobody would want to know what I had to say about Jesus. But that's a lie. And we have believed that for a very, very long time. But just like Jesus tells us, if salt has lost its taste, its saltiness cannot be restored. We are actually called to be as radical as possible from the rest of the world, which might mean that we're different, which might mean that we're weird according to the world's standards, but that is how we stand out. Look at this quote from one of the most famous New Testament scholars in our world today. This is what he says. The lived community is one of the key things. A church that is actually being the church on the street. Christianity did not spread by the great brains passing ideas to other great brains who developed them. And then there was a trickle-down effect. The reason people became Christians was because their neighbors were behaving differently. And the way they were behaving was deeply attractive, and they wanted to know why. This is how the early church in the first and second centuries grew. 
because they stood out and their neighbors and their family members wanted what they had and they were deeply attracted because the reason they were different was because Jesus was in their hearts. You and I have the opportunity every single day where we work, where we go to school, where we live, to be different in a way where people are attracted to us. That's what we're called to do as believers in Jesus Christ. That is what will set us apart from the rest of the world around us if we're willing to be radical and to do the things that society might think is strange or weird. It's what the Israelites were not willing to do. And so they left to serve these foreign gods and it really cost them a lot. Number two, we also see in this chapter that we serve our idols. You and I serve all of the idols in our life. You know, the Israelites were getting exactly what they wanted. They wanted to go and leave and serve after these gods. And so God said, I'm going to allow this to happen. But what happened was, as soon as they began serving these foreign gods, they came under their control. And what Judges is teaching us is, whatever idols, whatever little g gods that we are serving, they are controlling us. And that is what Judges is showing us. You know, even the atheist, the person who claims that there is no God, they are worshiping something. And whatever it is they are worshiping, they are under its control. The Israelites were under the control of these foreign nations. And Judges shows us that for 18 years they were oppressed and they were crushed which is another indication that any idol that we serve, any little g God controls us and it oppresses us. It does not bring life. Sure, in the moment, it might bring satisfaction. It might bring us happiness. But in the long run, you are under the control of whatever idol you are currently serving. The Israelites for 18 years suffered at the hands of these foreign nations. But it's exactly what they wanted. They wanted to go and follow after these gods because they thought that it brought life. But what they found out is down the road, it only led them to be a slave of those nations. You know, in our world today, freedom is a really big buzzword. So any opinion, any thought, any law, especially in America, that restricts an individual's right to freely choose or to freely do this or that is met with great resistance by the culture at large. But if you examine this belief deeply, what you'll come to see is that this belief is flawed. I want to show you a quote from a pastor and scholar in New York City. This is what he says about freedom. This is very, very eye-opening. He says, modern people like to see freedom, which is you and me, by the way. We're modern people. Like to see freedom as the complete absence of any constraints. But think of a fish. Because a fish absorbs oxygen from water, not air, it is free only if it is restricted to water. If a fish is freed from the river, and put on the grass to explore, its freedom to move and soon even to live is destroyed. 
The fish is not more free, but less free, if it cannot honor the reality of its nature. The same is true with airplanes and birds. If they violate the laws of aerodynamics, which I have no idea what those are, they will crash into the ground. But if they follow them, they will ascend and soar. And the same is true in many areas of life. Freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones. Those that fit with the realities of our own nature and those of the world. You are free to stay up all night and watch TV and read books and eat snacks, but you will pay for it the next day when you have to get up and go to work or school. We are free to remove all of the lanes on Interstate 10 and just have one big spacious lane where we can move from the left side of the road to the right side of the road. Everybody can just get out of our way because we had this one big lane all to ourselves. But the interstate system was not designed for us to be on the roads like that. So it would behoove us to learn what Scripture teaches or to remember what Scripture teaches is that the best way to live a life that your heart truly desires is to do what the Word of God says. You want unlimited freedom. You can only have it when you glorify the God whose image you were created in. That is how you get unlimited freedom. The Israelites thought, if we go and we worship all of these other gods, we're going to have access to all of the things that Yahweh told us we could never do. But what they found was, as soon as they got that freedom, they were more restricted than they had ever been before. We serve our idols. And then we also see that the Israelites actually bring before God false repentance. Because here's what happens. They don't like their current circumstances. And so they go to God and they say, God, we are so sorry. And unlike many times before, this time God says, you know what? Instead of delivering you from this disobedience that you have done over and over and over again, I'm going to actually tell you, go to the gods that you're serving and see if they are able to save you. This was not the answer the Israelites were looking for. Because throughout the story of the Old Testament up to this point, every time the Israelites had been disobedient, God redeemed them. He took care of them. But in this instance, God says, why don't you go talk to the gods that you're serving and see if they can save you? You see, confession and repentance are two completely different things. For example, I can yell at my children every time they do something wrong. And sometimes I do that. And if I go to my children and tell them, I'm sorry that daddy yelled at you, but then they continue to do the same things and I continue to yell at them, then I haven't really repented of anything. All I've done is confessed that I messed up. You see, confession for you and me and for the Israelites, that's the easy part. It's not hard to say that I'm sorry. Well, maybe for some of us it is. But it's really not that hard to tell God that we messed up. What's more difficult is to be intentional about repenting and turning away from that sin. And this is what the Israelites struggled with. They were ready and willing to tell God, I am sorry. But they were not ready to turn away from those false gods and come back to Yahweh. We are just like the Israelites. 
in so many ways. Because when we are in bad circumstances or we are in moments of sin, we will go to God and say, God, deliver me from these circumstances. But really a lot of times what we mean, if we're being honest, is just take the circumstances away, but I'd still like to keep the sin kind of close by. That's sometimes what we mean. And sometimes, just like here, God will actually leave us in our sin and leave us in our consequences until we realize that what we are doing is actually a sin against a holy God and we're not so worried about the difficult circumstances that we are in. The God that we serve hates sin. He is so holy and so perfect that he despises it. It's important to know, though, that even when we rightly repent and turn away from our sin, that there are always consequences for our behavior. I love the story from 1 Kings chapter 21. We don't have time to turn there today, but in this point in the history of Israel, we have entered the period where the kings are ruling over the nation. And in 1 Kings 21, Ahab sees this vineyard that is owned by a man named Naboth. And Naboth has this incredible vineyard, and Ahab wants it. And he goes to him and he says, give me your vineyard. And Naboth says, no way. And so Ahab returns disappointed, and Jezebel devises the scheme to go in and murder Naboth, and then he is given the vineyard. And Elijah The prophet of God finds out about this and he goes to Ahab and he says, what you have done is going to bring disaster upon you. And so Ahab confesses his sins and he's remorseful and he turns away and Elijah says, you know what? Because you have repented and turned away, I'm not going to bring disaster upon you. But the consequences for your sin are now going to fall to your son. And so what 1 Kings is teaching us is that even when we rightly repent, even when we do turn away from sin and have the right motive and want to get back in the right relationship with God, that there are always consequences as a result. And even if they don't immediately affect us, they might affect the next generation. They might affect our children or our grandchildren. And so we must take our sin very, very seriously. And then we see here, at the very end of this passage, that the Israelites think this is some type of game. You know, it ultimately says in the verses that the Israelites tell God, whatever it is you want to do with us, do it. So they are relinquishing control. They are so tired of their circumstances, so tired of being oppressed and crushed, that they finally come around and say, God, whatever it is you want to do, just do it. But deliver us from the hands of our enemies. But you know, most commentators actually point out that they're not really completely repentant. This is just another cycle in the game that the Israelites have been playing with God. They know that he will deliver them because that's who he is and that is his nature. But as we get to the end of the passage in chapters 15, verses 15 and 16, this is what we see. Two key characteristics that we learn about God in this chapter. Number one, he is compassionate. 
and he is gracious and he is forgiving. And if any time we have sin and we bring it before him and we are truly repentant, he will forgive us. Because he is faithful to the covenant that he made with the Israelites and he is faithful to the promise that he made with you and me. So what Jesus did on the cross for you and I proves to us that we can believe what God said he would do. So we see that he's faithful and compassionate. But we also see that he is frustrated and he gets annoyed and he gets saddened when he sees his holy people sin over and over and over again. The text tells us that he grew impatient with the Israelites. This is a human emotion that Judges gives us to describe God. Impatient over their wickedness and their sin. It is a reminder to every one of us. Just like we sang this morning, the God of Yahweh loves us and cares for us and forgives us and extends grace and mercy, but that does not mean that He doesn't care about our sin. He does. And we see this frustration that he has as he continues to see his own children fall short of what he wanted them to do. You know, sometimes when we read stories like this and we see ourselves in it, we get discouraged. Because I've already talked about how radical we should be how much we should stand out from the culture around us. And sometimes that's a lot of pressure to bear. And some of you I know right now are thinking, I'm just not that radical. I'm just not that different from everyone else around me. I want to be, but I'm really just a normal guy or a normal girl. So I want to read to you this quote, which actually celebrates what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. And I hope it's encouraging to you. The ordinary Christian life is not the opposite of the radical Christian life. Let me say it again. The ordinary Christian life is not the opposite of the radical Christian life. The ordinary Christian life is a radical life. The ordinary Christian life is a life of daily trusting Christ, daily repenting of our sins, daily abiding in Christ, daily loving Christ, daily dying to self, daily taking up our crosses and following Christ, daily loving God and neighbor, and daily proclaiming the gospel to ourselves, our families, our friends, and our communities. Every Christian is an ordinary Christian, and every ordinary Christian is a radical Christian. The ordinary Christian is not a complacent, passionless, nominal, or casual Christian. On the contrary, every ordinary Christian person, child, teenager, college student, father, mother, husband, wife, single man, single woman, retired man, retired woman, every Christian is radical because every Christian is united to Christ by faith and will bear radical, life-giving fruit. Celebrate the fact this morning that you are ordinary. Because if you are ordinary and you are in Christ, you are radical. Many of the Israelites that we read about in Judges don't ever do anything special. They just go about their day-to-day -day life. 
And God ultimately uses the Israelites so that he can get glory. You know, sometimes I think that we're guilty of playing the very same game that we see the Israelites playing. That sometimes we show up on Sunday morning and we go to our Bible study and then we leave here on Sunday and we don't think at all about God the rest of the week. That happens. We do that sometimes because we're human. But the reality is, everywhere we go, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, in your neighborhood, with your coworkers, in your families, and with anybody else that you hang out with, it is our job to be missional. Missional is just a fancy word for taking the gospel to every single area of life that you go. If you want people to be excited about what God is doing in this building, they better see you excited about what God is doing in your life outside this building. You see, that's what draws people in. When we go onto the ball field, into the workplace, and we let people know that the Jesus who saved us excites us, and that he loves us, and that he cares about us. And if we have that type of energy, that type of passion in our neighborhoods, wherever we go, people will be excited to come and see what God is doing here. So we end this passage with God being frustrated with the Israelites because he sees this cycle continuing to happen over and over and over again. And it seems as if the Israelites are learning nothing. And sometimes God is teaching us that even if we struggle in our sin, even if we fall short, He still loves us, and he's still faithful to the covenant that he made with us. If you would, bow your heads with me this morning. God, we come before you this morning studying this passage, knowing that there are probably sins in our life that we need to examine perhaps sins that we have even confessed before you, but still sin that we have not repented from. So this morning, as we respond to the word of God, I pray that you would search our hearts. Show us the areas where we need to truly repent and turn away and follow after you wholeheartedly. God, we know that you love us and we rest in your grace, in your mercy this morning. And so if there is anyone here who does not think that you love them, speak to them right now. Show them the love and grace that you have for all of us. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.